trying to make you more comfortable. For those who are waving, we're never taking you on a missions trip, by the way, because we will, you will be in harsher environments that you're in right now. There's people fanning all over the place. But the same people come up and tell me they're cold the week before, so I don't know what to do. We'll figure it out, all right? Let's open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We begin at verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of all of them the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise on the salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all scripture, not some scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you, therefore, before God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Here's why. Time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, sound teaching. But according to their own desires, they will have itching ears and they will heap up for themselves teachers so they will turn their ears away from the truth, the scriptures, and be turned aside to fables, to stories. But you... Timothy, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul writes here, verse 16, very important, all scripture is inspired by God. The Bible is inspired by God. The Bible is God's revelation of himself to you and to me. Do you ever wonder why the Bible's not a book of lists? Do you ever wonder why it doesn't start with chapter one on how to have a great marriage, chapter two, how to build a great business, chapter three, how to raise great kids? Do you ever wonder why the Bible doesn't give us all these esoteric prophecies and, and all these things that would wow us? Because if it did, it would be all about us, and we're used to things being all about us, right? The Bible's all about him. It's all about God and his great love for us. And all scripture is inspired by God. Now, here's a great question, and some of your colleagues may ask you this. If all Scripture is inspired by God, if the Holy Bible is God's Word, then who wrote the Bible? Now, if you answer that and say, God wrote the Bible, you're wrong, because that means some angel or God himself wrote the Bible, and man found it in a cave or something, and there's no evidence for that, and it's not true. If you say man wrote the Bible, you're wrong, because then people would say it's fallible and we couldn't live by it and it can't be the word of God. So the truth is, man wrote the Bible and he was under the inspiration of God. Peter writes this when he says, knowing first that no pri prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of old 
as they were moved by the Spirit of God, were inspired, wrote these things. God was the author. God the Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. Man is the scribe. Now, a classic place, and do your homework on your own. Uh, we'll put this on the screen, but just write the text because it's worth looking at. In Acts chapter 4, we see the early church. And Peter and John are arrested for preaching the resurrection. And they're put in jail, and then they're let out. And when they're let out, the people rejoice. And in chapter 4, verse 24, uh, when they saw that Peter and John were released, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth, the sea, all that is in it, who by the mouth of your servant David have said... And then they quote Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Why do they plot a vain thing against your Christ, etc., etc.? In other words, this was the words of God through the mouth of David. David wrote about 75 of the Psalms um, under the inspiration of God. He wrote many more Psalms not inspired, but these are the ones that are inspired and they found their way into Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God. All 66 books of the Old Testament and New Testament are inspired by God. Now the question is, is there evidence? Is there internal and external evidence that the Bible is true? The Holy Bible, is it wholly true? And the answer is yes, there is. Now, I've done this before. It's not my intent this morning just to do this. But I want to walk you through very quickly some internal and external evidence. And then I want to put all of this in its context. So, rather quickly, I want to give you five internal and external arguments that all Scripture, all 66 books, are inspired by God. The first one is that the Bible is in complete harmony with the science of its day and even beyond. Now, this is important. If the Bible's a message system from God, if it comes outside of our time domain... Even though the Bible's not a science book, it must be scientifically accurate. This is quite a statement. If we find one thing in the Bible not scientifically accurate, we could throw the whole thing away. Now, here's why this is profound. Science is discovering new things every single day, and that's a good thing. I wish more scientists would open a Bible, pray, and then go on a discovery, because that's what God wants us to do. In the ages to come, we're going to learn of his grace. We're going to learn really cool things about the universe. But it's changing every day. It's changed so much in the time that I've been on the planet. The electron microscope, the Hubble telescope, we're finding out things about inside of us and in our universe we never dreamed of before. When our country was founded, um, the founding fathers, if they went to Europe, went by boat as people had for hundreds of years. Today, we sit on a Dreamliner and we watch movies and eat wonderful meals on China. I mean, it's crazy. So how in the world could the Bible be in harmony if it was written so long ago, thousands of years? And the answer is it's a message system outside of our time domain. Now, we could look in Job, the oldest book in the Bible, where we see the perfect rendering of our hydraulic system. Job says all the rivers and streams run into the sea, but they never get filled. He's talking about the evaporation process there. You can look at Genesis 1 and 2 exactly according to the scientific method of today that we understand. But there's a critique of the Bible that bugs me, really bugs me. If you go on the internet, and before the internet, people wrote books and said, 
We discount the Bible because it's a flat earth book. The people that wrote the Bible believed as they should have in their day, their worldview, that the earth was flat. Therefore, we reject it. They'll point to verses about the foundations of the earth, the pillars of the earth, the four winds or the circuit of heaven. And what they don't realize is that those writers were writing about the security of the earth that God had made. In other words, God had put systems in place that would never be altered because God is a God of truth. So the laws of gravity and the laws of science would always be the same for us. Um, For example, when I'm in South Florida on the West Coast side, at about 6 o'clock I get in my car, I get a beach chair, and I go down to the beach, and there's hundreds of people there drinking wine, eating cheese, and if I went up to any of them and said, what are you doing here at 6 o'clock? Most people sunbathe early in the day. They would all say they are there to watch the sunset. To which I would say, well, the sun doesn't set, nor does it rise, and they would look at me very strangely, correct? So people said, well, the Bible's not true because it says, from the rising of the sun till it's going down, the name of the Lord shall be praised, and we know the sun doesn't rise or it doesn't set. And the answer is, from our perspective, it does, even though it doesn't. If you go on your Google apps for weather, it'll give you, even today, in 2017, the sunrise and the sunset. The earth as a sphere, Job 26, 7. He stretched out the earth over empty space, and he hangs the earth on nothing. Isaiah said it is he, God, who sits above the circle or the sphere of the earth, and the inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Uh, my favorite one is from Job, where it says that, that he, he, ta- he looks at the turn of the earth as, as a clay seal. This is very interesting. So to put a signature on something in that day, they would take a hollow cylinder and they would put a raised signature on it. They would put it in ink and they would take a piece of wood in a hollow cylinder and turn it for the seal, showing us almost the axis of the earth. So uh, the Bible writers did not know it probably at the time, but they were inspired that the earth was round. And by the way, the Egyptians knew this hundreds of years before Christ. Psalm 8.8 8 talks about paths that are in the sea, long before we discovered shipping channels. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that those things that are visible, this pulpit, are made of things that are not visible. Now, if you told me that, I would look at you very strangely If you told me this pulpit was made out of something that's invisible, I would look at you very strangely, except I studied science in high school, and I know about atoms and protons and et cetera, et cetera. But the writer of the Hebrews? Fascinating. My favorite is John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. It fascinates me. We've gone from an agrarian to an industrial to a technological, to an information age. And we're right back in the Genesis 1. In the beginning was the word. Information, the word of God, DNA, every hair on our head is numbered. Now, every once in a while, a smart aleck comes along and said if Jesus wanted to really show us he was God, instead of talking about mustard seeds and plants of his day, he would have talked about the great redwoods that are only in California And then he would have wowed us. Well, 
Jesus wowed us when he turned water into wine and opened blind eyes, don't you think? But if Jesus would have talked about redwoods, he would have deceived people for 2,000 years. See what happens when we try and get in the place of God, what God should have done or what he could have done. The Bible is in complete, 100% harmony with the science of its day and beyond. Second proof, and maybe the greatest proof, is prophecy. God said in Isaiah, I am God and there is no other because I could do one thing. I could tell you the end from the beginning. The Bible is the only religious book. Trust me. Read them all for yourself if you need to. It is the only religious book that attempts to tell the future before it happens. There's over a thousand prophecies in the Bible. 90% of them center around the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at just the first coming of Christ. There's over 100 prophecies. We can whittle that down to 50 that we could say, wow, we saw this in the life of Jesus Christ. But let's take it down to 25. Born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin. Crucifixion, which didn't even exist at the time. Uh, gambling for his clothes, none of his bones be broken. I mean, let's whittle it down to 25. Let's take it down to the eight. Let's take it to the eight that no one could deny. Peter Stoner says if we take it down to those eight, he has a book called Science Speaks, the mathematical probabilities of those eight in one person being fulfilled that were written hundreds of years before is 10 to the 17th power. Now, it's early in the morning, and most of us aren't good at math anyway, so uh, here's the classic example Stoner gives. If you would take silver dollars and place them in the state of Texas, all over Texas, two feet deep. Mark one with a Sharpie, embed it in all those silver dollars. The odds of these eight prophecies being fulfilled by Jesus Christ would be the same as if I put you in Texas and you had to pick out on your first attempt the marked silver dollar. It's astronomical. And yet this is only eight, and these are only a few of the Bible's predictions. Now, today's the Super Bowl. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say Atlanta is going to win. <laughs> now, if they win, am I a prophet? No. It's a 50-50 shot. If you're pregnant and I say you're going to have a girl and you have a girl, it's just 50-50. What if I gave you the exact score? It'd be pretty wild, wouldn't you? What if I gave you Tom Brady's completion percentage? Ooh. ESPN might call me up, right? What if I told you how many field goals would be made and missed? Who would make the first tackle? All the interceptions, all the rushing yards, every receiver's receptions. All of a sudden, you would know something's up. And yet the Bible has over a thousand predictions. The third thing that tells us the Bible's true is archaeology. Archaeology is a new science, only been around since the 1800s. It's the Bible's best friend. For those of you who go to Israel with us, everywhere we go, those sites have been dug up because the Bible said they were there. My favorite day is Capernaum, the city where Jesus did most of his preaching in the Galilee. We go to the literal remains of the synagogue where he taught and healed people. We see Peter's house. We go to Teldam. We see altars from the Old Testament. Everywhere we go in Israel, everything's as it should be. 
Can I give you my two favorite? One is in Caesarea by the sea. For years, people looked at the Bible and said, Pilate never lived. Remember Pilate? Kind of washed his hands with Jesus. But forever and ever, through history, you know, he's been in our consciousness because we all said the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ, his only son, crucified under Pontius Pilate. I said that every Sunday. But scholars said Pontius Pilate never existed. Until 1961 in Caesarea, they found a stone tablet with his inscription. If you go there today, it's there. It's a replica. If you go to the Hebrew Museum, you can see the real one. My second favorite is in Greece. We go to the north of Greece. We go to Philippi. For people that have never seen ruins, they see ruins for the first time, and they're, they're out of their mind. They're running around. We take them to the, the literal jail where uh, Paul was released, and, and people are just amazed, right? You know what amazes me? A very obscure verse in Acts. I take people to Philippi, and I say, anybody find something out of place here? And no one ever finds it, but what's fascinating is we're in Greece. The Greek language exists today. But all the writings on the buildings that are in the ruins are written in Latin. And in Acts, it says they came to Philippi, comma, a Roman colony. A Roman colony. Why was it a Roman colony? Because retired military men couldn't afford to live in Rome. Things never changed. So like we go to Arizona and Florida, they would go to the north of Greece to a place called Philippi, and it became a Roman colony. There wasn't even a synagogue there. That's why Paul had to go to the river to preach to Lydia. And it's little things like that where archaeology has become the Bible's best friend. Armin Navabi has written a book called Why There Is No God, Simple Responses to 20 Common Arguments for the Existence of God. Uh, Armin grew up in Iran, Tehran, Iran, devout Muslim, trained as a child in Islam, became an atheist in his later life, and he started um, the Atheist Republic, has over a million followers as a safe place for former Christians, Muslims, people of all religions to safely explore and be comfortable in their atheism. So he gives these 20 arguments, and one of his arguments is that Religious texts are man-made and fallible. In other words, when people say all scripture is inspired by God, he says religious texts are man-made and fallible. He said there's a simple explanation for the errors in the Quran and the Bible. These documents were written by humans and in many cases were stitched together from oral traditions and transcribed decades later. He says, let's talk about Jesus. His contemporaries were Aramaic-speaking illiterate commoners. Changed the world, by the way. They could neither read nor write, so stories were passed around orally. Like all gossip, these oral histories are bound to have transformed over time by gaining embellishments, mixing up details, and forgetting important facts. Just like any other legend from the invasion of Troy to the tales of Paul Bunyan, these stories likely contain much more poetic license than actual history. And I'm amazed that he wrote that because it makes the Bible even more miraculous. Because now I have to believe that Aramaic-speaking illiterate commoners wrote 27 books of the New Testament that Time magazine 
Time magazine had on its cover why the Bible should be taught in public schools. You know why they think it should be? They ranked it alongside Shakespeare in 25 categories and said the Bible's greater than Shakespeare. So now we have another miracle. Illiterate commoners wrote something greater than Shakespeare. The other problem we have is he said that, that it's according to fables. Sir William Ramsey, I just talked about archaeology, is one of the premier archaeologists of all history. You can Google him. He spent 30 years of his life trying to disprove Luke. You know why? Luke is one of the most historical books we have, Luke and Acts. Luke gives us more dates, more, more government leaders, more times. He was a doctor. And so Ramsey went out to disprove Luke. He shocked the academic world when he declared Luke to be one of the greatest historians of all time, secular or sacred, and then convert it to Christianity. I picked this up when I was in London last year, the British Museum, one of the greatest museums in the world. It's called The Bible in the British Museum, Interpreting the Evidence. There are 70 artifacts from antiquity in Asia Minor and the Holy Land, verifying dates, names, and places. And this is a secular book that the Bible is 100% accurate. The fourth evidence, and no one thinks about this, the Bible you have in your hand was written by 40 authors over thousands of years. And one of the evidences for it is the miracle of preservation. If God inspired the scriptures and if man wrote them, God would have to make sure it would come down to our day, and it has. We never think like this, but most of what was written before us has passed on. Most writings from antiquity are gone. You know why? Fire. You know, one of the seven wonders of the world, the Library of Alexandria in Egypt, is gone. We lost all those records. Except for the Persians and the Babylonians who wrote some things on stone, things were written on papyrus. It would shrivel and shrink. There was wind damage and sand. There were fires. Um, people tried to destroy the Bible. In A.D. 303, there was an edict in Rome that all Bibles would be destroyed. And yet, not only do we have Bibles, we have an explosion of manuscripts in the New Testament, 24,000 fragments. And you wonder, how did this happen? How was it preserved? Well, there were men called scribes. You read about them in the New Testament. A scribe would start his training at 14. He would be done the training at 40. In other words, he would start copying at 40 years old. There were copy rules. Cross-checkings, redundancies. Look up at the screen. Here's a list of them. Only special inks were used. There was always a master, no copies. They would count the distance between the letters. Hebrew and Greek, the Bible languages, are not only alphabetical letters, they're numbers, so they could count across the page to make sure they were correct. Each letter had to be visually confirmed. Each letter of the alphabet counted, verified. Uh, one mistake, the entire scroll was destroyed. Uh, last year we were in Israel and we actually saw scribes who were still doing this work, um, a seven-year process. So scribes would make copy after copy after copy so that the Bible would come down into our day. Now, in 
about the year 2 to 300 BC, the Septuagint was written. This is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew scriptures. Seventy scholars got together and they translated Hebrew into the known language of the day, which was Greek, which contained all the prophecies of Christ. But the most profound discovery was 1948 when a little shepherd boy went into a cave and found cylinders that we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. Fragments of the Old Testament, 800 scrolls in 11 caves. They found every book of the Bible, some of them 200 years before Christ. And the exact book of Isaiah, the same as the one on your lap, except there's four mistakes. They are all grammatical or spelling. If God inspired his word, he can preserve his word, and he has. And finally, number five, Jesus. Jesus verified that the Old Testament was the word of God. Jesus quoted the scriptures. In fact, he quoted books that skeptics come against. He quoted Daniel. He quoted Genesis. He talked about marriage. In the beginning, God made them male and female. He believed Noah was real. He believed the flood was real. He believed the manna was real. He talked about the Ten Commandments. When the devil came at him in Luke chapter 4 in the time of his de uh, temptation, he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Speaking to the religious leaders in John 5, 39, he said, you search the scriptures, but they are the ones that testify of me. How many times would he come to the religious leaders and said, have you never read? <laughs> These were men who spent their life reading scripture. He goes, you, you ever read the Bible? You are not knowing the, the scriptures. Uh, if you can get there, this is a hidden gem. Luke chapter 24. And you'll have to read it when you get home because it's a hidden gem. Luke 24. Forty-four. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Remember the two on the road to Emmaus? He took them through that Bible study and showed himself in the scriptures. Jesus said, I've spoken these words to you. And he said, these are they that testified me. He said, you could go to Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you can go to the prophets, and then you can go to the Psalms, the wisdom books. Jesus validated the Septuagint and the entire Old Testament right here with the very words of God. Isaiah said in the volume of the book, they speak of me. Now, if all 66 books are inspired, the question you should have is, why these 66? Why are these 66 books the inspired book? We call the 66 books the canon. It sounds like a big religious term, right? A canon means a rule. That's all it means. There was a rule, there was a test to see if books were canonical. Um, don't want to get into that right now. It's very technical. F.F. Bruce has done most of the heavy lifting. We have his books in our bookstore. He's written two books I recommend, Are the New Testament Documents Reliable? And he's written the canon of scripture. 
Uh, sometimes people will give you this argument. Well, you can't trust the New Testament because it took almost a 400 AD till they could say these were the books of the New Testament. Well, that's not true. They knew by the end of the first century what was inspired and what wasn't. I'll just quote F.F. F. Bruce on one thing. He said, one thing must be emphatically stated. The New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in a canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already knew they were divinely inspired. Uh, he talks about North Africa where the, the conference at Hippo 393 and Carthage 397. He said, these councils did not impose something new on the Christian community but they only accepted what was already known. To sum up what we may quote, the verdict of the late Sir Francis Kenyon, a scholar whose authority to make pronouncements on ancient manuscripts is second to none. He said the interval between the data of the original composition and the early exact evidence becomes so small to be in fact negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed, both authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. And we haven't even talked about the miracle of the English Bible. There's a book called Wide as the Waters and God's Secretaries, the King James Version, which is fabulous. All scripture given by God. Why is this important? Because Paul tells Timothy in chapter 3, perilous times will come. Perilous times. And you go through the list, and it says men will be lovers of themselves, boasters, proud, blasphemers. Uh, I don't know why he goes through the whole list. He puts the word brutal in. That's all I need to hear, right? I'm a Philly guy. Just tell me it's brutal. I get it. Eagles were brutal when I was growing up. Phillies were brutal. You know, Perilous times are coming, Timothy. But what gets strange in chapter 3 is, he says perilous times are coming, and he said they will have a form of godliness denying the power thereof. Wow. In other words, he's not talking about the dominant lost culture. That culture is always going to do things contrary to God. And look at the fear in our world today. Look, you know, look at the terrorism. Look, you know what's going on at airports and all that. People are in fear just from the dominant culture. He goes down a level and says, Timothy, perilous times are coming when men are going to be lovers of themselves, lovers of truth. They're going to have a form of godliness denying the power thereof. He says, Timothy, let me tell you what you're up against. You're up against the dominant culture in Ephesus. You're up against... False teachers that will always be here, perilous times. You're up against a visible church that's not really the church. They have a form of godliness, deny the power thereof. They're like Jannies and Jambres who, who, when Moses was coming to Pharaoh, would turn their sticks into serpents also. That's why Christianity sometimes is hard to defend. People talk about the Inquisition, they talk about the Crusades, they talk about slavery. It's very hard for us to defend because we have to say that wasn't the real church. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. They weren't representative of true born-again believers. What you start to discover is there's always a visible church and then there's always the real church. 
People who have been born again by the power of God, who love God and aren't always visible. Timothy, you got a fight on your hands. You got to realize this. There's going to be epics of time where the dominant culture and the subculture are going to be against you. And here is your only resolve the scriptures. The scriptures. It's the only thing you have, Timothy. And what he's telling Timothy is stay in the word, stay true to the word, preach the word, love the word. It's inspired by God. It makes the man and the woman of God complete. It's the only thing you can rely on, Timothy. And you've known it since you were a child. The scriptures can make you wise unto salvation. It's the anchor of your soul. This is so important to me. When we started our church 23 years ago, this was our belief. We're going to preach the word. And the seed of God's word is going to go to in a heart of people. And people's hearts are going to get filled. And they're going to come out of, the, out of the pews and say, we want to start a men's ministry. We want to start a women's ministry. We want to reach the inner city. We want to love on poor people. We want to go on missions trips. Today we have a culture where everybody's turned that around. We were working with a church in South Philly. 17 members left. We were trying to get it restarted. Uh, we did a couple things there for a couple years. There was some energy going. And they brought in a pastor who said he knew the answer. He was going to make everything community-oriented. And I said, that's wonderful. You have a lot of people in need here. But can you do me a favor? Preach the word. Because if you preach the word, your people will grow, and they'll want to go out and help the community. But if you have a baker's mentality that we're going to do community outreach, men and women's retreats, and all this other stuff, and that's going to be a church. You're doing it backwards. Preach the word. Stay in the word. Love the word. Stand on the word. It's all that we have. All the arguments I gave you today, I didn't know any of them when I became a Christian. Not one. Faith came over me. I believed in God. I was saved. And his word became so real to me. I opened the Gospel of John. It was like the letters were this big. And the Bible is life-giving. It's not a book. It's a person. It's life-giving. I didn't know any of those arguments, but I knew I didn't come from monkeys. And I knew I wasn't going to ashes. The scriptures taught me there's a God who made me not only made me, made me unique and loves me. The scriptures taught me that the law of the Lord is perfect because it's restored my soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It's made wise of every simple person. The precepts of the Lord are right. Can't tell you how many times my heart rejoices when I open God's word. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It's enlightened my eyes. I look at the world differently today. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. When I'm gone, it'll still be here. The judgments of the Lord are true, and they are righteous altogether. We have a message system from God that has been around for thousands of years. People have stood on it and borne fruit, and it's been the anchor to their soul. As a church, we can never move away from the word of God. As a people of God, we can never move away from the word of God. Skeptics will be out there. They'll tell us that some scripture's inspired, some's not. We need to stand on it. 
We need to love it. We need to live it. We need to preach it. Father, we thank you this morning that the scriptures have made us wise unto salvation. They've given us a clear worldview and a look at the times we live in. Lord, we look around and people's hearts are failing them for fear of what's coming upon the earth. Lord, you have given us a sure foundation. Lord, we know where this world is going. We know the plans that you have for us. They are good and perfect. We thank you for your word. Lord, may it always do all that you wanted to accomplish. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. And before we sing, guys, you are in for an amazing treat next week. David Brickner, Jews for Jesus, they're in San Francisco. They evangelize Jews all over the world. Will be here with us. He's been on Larry King. He's been on CNN. He'll be right here with us. And he's going to have a Seder for us, right on the stage. And he's going to teach us about Christ in the Passover Seder. And then we're going to take communion. It's going to be the, one of the best days of Calvary we've ever had. So make sure you're here. Make sure you invite people. Let's sing this final song.